no one will ever care more about your company than you. And that's not because they don't actually care about working for you. It's just the way that it is. Like you will naturally just simply care more. But that's not to say that you need to find people that care as much as you. It's much more like you've got to like come down a little bit. <laughs> and I've I have learned over the years, especially when it comes to hiring, it is natural for me to care 100%, maybe even 200%, but not everyone's going to be on that same level and that's actually okay. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome to the SaaS Revolution show. Um, I'm your host, Alex Thuma, CEO, founder of SaaStock. Delighted to be joined. Uh, uh, once again, uh, returning to the podcast is Asia Arangio, uh, uh, who's the CEO of Demand Maven. Welcome, uh, Asia. Yes, thank you so much again for having me. Super pumped to be here. And I'm excited to dive into what we're going to talk about today. Yes, likewise. And, and uh, a clue, it's going to be about top growth pitfalls that you, are, you aren't expecting. Um, uh, that's a big clue, uh, by the way. But um, Asia, let's kick off. So obviously, you have been on the podcast. I think like within SaaS, uh, definitely, uh, I, I see, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, you're quite, uh, I'd say, sort of a growing uh, presence and, and brand. Um, but let's assume that those uh, that are listening today haven't heard of you before um, and they're not on Twitter or they're not coming to the conferences or watching your content. Um, who are you? Uh, you know, but who are you <laughs> as, a, as a person? And, and maybe for those that do know you, like share maybe a story that we don't know that really kind of shapes you as, a, uh, as an entrepreneur or a person. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm the CEO and founder of Demand Maven. We are a growth consulting firm. We are also part agency, part consultancy, but we work with SaaS companies on achieving their growth milestones, whether that's 1 million in ARR, 5 million, 10 million, whatever it is. And we, our bread and butter really comes from our understanding of growth being a holistic practice, not just marketing and acquisition, but also all the way down into activation, retention, expansion, and also across how we are internally set up. And in terms of me, so my background, I've been running Demand Maven now for five years, and my background comes from marketing and demand gen for two VC-funded uh, startups here in Atlanta. And also previously, I served on the board of Moz before it was acquired in, gosh, was that June 2021, I believe? And uh, in terms of stories that you might uh, not have heard about me or heard from me before that have shaped me, I um, it's so it's so interesting because like I I remember this question and I remember thinking like I have I have a story, but it's it's it might feel like a downer at first, but something about me is I transform negative experiences into positive ones. And mm -hmm. um, I think the thing that has shaped me the most in my life was actually losing my grandmother when I was in my early 20s. And her, uh, her passing really taught me so much about life and what it meant to live and to take care of myself and to just know that every day is not promised. So if that's the case, and how do I actually want to live? So that might feel like a little bit like, oh, sad. But at the same exact time, I actually think it was, it was such a learning experience. It was the first real death I had ever had to process in my life. And it completely changed how I thought about everything. It actually, 
it actually was part of the catalyst for me getting into SaaS and startup world. I was working at a very different company at the time. And it, it I mean, it, like, it's so cliche now, but it was kind of like the, the YOLO mindset a little bit, like you only live once. <laughs> but I actually, um, I grew so much from that experience. And even now I'm still learning so much about how it's shaped, how I, how I think and how I approach things now. No, no it's, a, it's a great mindset. Um, I, I think, you know, well, hopefully everybody should be able to turn, you know, or take something out of a negative and make it into positive. And, and similarly, just as entrepreneurs, like, you know, turning failures and, you know, into successes and taking the lessons, you know, from that, the kind of uh, um, a, a similar sort of tangent. Um, but uh, I wonder if that's what makes entrepreneurs slightly different. Because uh, I, I just had on the, the previous podcast, a guy called Stefan Smolders, who's bootstrapped his company uh, to about, uh, I think it was like 7 million in, you know, like three years, um, which is pretty good growth for a bootstrap company. Um, but he had eight years of failing before he started to see some success, right? And I just think that not everybody would persist with with eight years and, it, the, uh, you know, a failure before, and you know, carrying on. And I think there's perhaps something special, you know, about entrepreneurs that we can we can do that, right? You know, turn the positives into the negatives, turn the failures, you know, into uh, successes. And I think like, um, like Stefan said, like never give up. And I think, you know, entrepreneurs often, the ones that make it have got the never give up uh, attitude. The the ones that give up obviously don't, don't make it and probably not cut out to be entrepreneurs, right? Um, um, and I guess kind of... <laughs> Talking of a negative, uh, and this is a you know a, a interesting segue. But the current market is pretty negative, right? And it <laughs> could, it could it could have been a lot worse. Um, you, you know, obviously we I think for what six months we've been seeing you know the major tech layoffs. There's been talk about recession. Recession? Are we in one? Is it coming? What's happening? Everyone batting down the hatches, cut costs, and and so on. And then the banks start to fail, uh, you know, SVB out of the blue. I mean, like to me, out of the blue, uh, you, you know, just kind of on Thursday, said we're having trouble on Friday, uh, you, you know, went bankrupt, right? And um, uh, yeah, like it just seems like pr- pretty crazy times, right? So mm-hmm. getting to the question, like, what are you seeing, you know, in the, the current market? How is it impacting SaaS, your clients, you as, you, you know, kind of running an agency? And what are your thoughts about, navigating you know through this um yeah through this moment yeah yeah uh gosh yeah at the time of this recording at least there's there's been a lot (laughs) okay so the things that we are seeing and the advice that i'm giving the very first is somewhere uh, well first i guess i'll start with the reigning advice we have to focus on controlling our controllables it's the only way that we are going to be able to stay sane we have to focus on controlling controllables we can't control our uncontrollables only the thing that we can actually control so if we're channeling our energy towards something it's going to be likely our businesses our livelihoods family etc And when it comes to business, the first place that I recommend pretty much every single founder start is to start with context of customer. Uh, The reason why I say that is because with recession and with also the ecosystem and the fabric of how startups and SaaS companies just move through space and time, those things are shifting and changing, which means that the context for how you operate is changing, but then also there's a really good chance that your customers are actually getting impacted in some kind of way as well. And... Um, the I think the talk that I gave at SaaS Talk 
uh, last year um, definitely spoke to this more directly. But the thing that I'm recommending is if if you want to ensure that you are preparing yourself for growth, because here's the thing, like we can't not prepare for growth. We can't just like cut everything and then like go to the Winchester and hope the whole thing blows over. Like that's not really like how um, we are going to thrive throughout this. Uh, we have to really understand what has changed for customers. And also we have to decide, does it still make sense to go to market those two to those existing customers or do we need to pivot for a little bit? And um, and again, this is a controlling your controllable situation because we can't necessarily force customers to stick around, to care, to whatever, especially if they are feeling any kind of recession as well. Um, we ultimately have to understand and empathize where they're coming from now and how it might have been different maybe a couple of years ago and also where where we want to go next. And I think so that's that's one. I think, though, in terms of like what we're seeing across clients and um, even like our own business. So, well, everyone in, in general is scared. There's a lot of fear. There's also a lot of caution. There's um, there's so much more talk now about being profitable and finding sustainable growth rather than the growth by simply overhiring um, overproduction and and also like not really meeting the demand because there's so much supply, and so like the 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 big trend that uh, I'm seeing even just like on Twitter on LinkedIn and the conversations that I'm having is uh, investors and VCs are really encouraging sustainable growth profitability. What can we do to uh, be an established company as we are today, as opposed to maybe five or ten years from now when we you know finger quote make it. And I think that um, I'm not surprised by this mindset. And I actually think, in a way, it's uh, it's needed. Again, turning that negative into a positive. I actually think that this is a great opportunity for companies to really think about how they are approaching their own growth from a sustainable and profitable perspective. And that does mean getting into the rigor of some of what we're going to talk about today. But then also thinking about, again, like if we're controlling our controllables here, what are some of the things that are in our direct impact and control that we can then leverage to um, not just survive throughout this really weird, unpredictable period, but also to come out of the other end thriving, which is the ultimate goal. But what I can say is I don't think that there's any discussion of not investing in growth. I think it's just what are the smartest possible investments we can make that's not just spending more money on marketing, but that's really thinking strategically about how we are acquiring customers, converting them, keeping them, and then creating more value across segments that maybe have been less hit by all of this. And those are the conversations I'm having with my clients. Um, Those are the conversations that I'm having with other investors and VCs and other consultants in the space. And that's what we're seeing, at least from our perspective. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, very, very, very similar here. I mean, like, we should still be going for growth. But it's that, you know, capital efficient growth, or, um, you know, various kind of, uh, let, let's say cautious sort of growth uh, uh, this year. And it's been like, as you say, I think, we've seen some crazy times over the last sort of few years. And it does feel like, you know, the, the correction that's probably needed and reminding people, you know, to grow a company, uh, you know, probably in the, the the right way, more in that sort of like bootstrap mentality than, you know, just kind of uh, the, the crazy spending and hiring um, that was happening, right? And we're seeing that you don't need 30,000 people to run a company. 
but you can probably do it like with with uh, OpenAI, 375 people, right? You know, compared to, I was seeing like Alexa has 10,000 people working on the product and, um, you, you know, that's a, a comparative sort of difference. So leaner, more efficient businesses, uh, you know, seem to be uh, uh, the soup du jour and what uh, uh, will, will uh, re hopefully remain for the foreseeable future. Uh, I, I predict that growth at all costs will probably come back uh, at some point, um, <laughs> I hope not. Um, I, I mean, like you, you know, I, I I don't know, but it doesn't seem necessary. So, um, if we can all be capital efficient, we run businesses, then I think the world is a a better place. Um, Completely agree. And so, let's go into the um, the topic for the podcast. So, we mentioned the the big clue was uh, actually what we're going to be talking about the the top growth pitfalls that you aren't expecting. Um, so I'm very curious uh, to learn more about this, as I'm sure are, are the listeners. Uh, so take us through uh, these top growth pitfalls that we are not expecting. Okay, yeah. So all of this, for context, all of this came about because we are actually in the process now of working with several companies of analyzing their growth. And um, we very much come from the belief of growth is holistic practice. It's, as you know, it's not just about acquisition and awareness building. It's also about you've got to activate those customers, then you got to keep them. Then ideally, they're expanding into upsells, cross-sells, add-ons. And then from there, um, there's the other side of growth that many folks actually don't really think about or talk about, but it does directly impact how we grow as companies. And that's what are the processes? What's the performance? What are we currently tracking and measuring? And also, what are some of the cultural or mindset aspects about how we think about growth and how we ultimately align our resources and put all of our minds together and do the thing. Uh, but when, uh, so the past few weeks, I've been deep into about four, I would say five companies. And each of these companies uh, are struggling with some aspect of this. And I'm, I'm noticing that there's, there's trends. And the other context to keep in mind too, is that um, some of these companies saw extreme growth through the pandemic years. And then now that, now that, you know, this is kind of slowing down, um, they're starting to see slowed growth and then others are just starting. So they're, they're struggling at like the 5k or 10k MRR mark and they're trying to get to a million and they're like, what is going on? We have no idea. Um, so to start, these are, these are the things that as we talk through them, they're going to feel obvious but I'm going to give you some examples of where it shows up, where it's maybe not so obvious. Um, but the first is lacking internal processes. And this isn't just specific to growth, but the whole business, actually. But we, what we find is most of the processes, at least in the early days, should be aligned to some form of sustainable, approachable growth, of course. When I say processes, most people think about like, steps one, two, three on how to like publish a blog post. Oh, you got to get a writer and then you got to like give them a topic and then they're going to create a brief and then they're going to upload it into Webflow and then you're like, maybe you'll edit it or whatever. Um, when I say process, most people think about that kind of process of how to tactically execute something that's been executed or done before. But when I say processes, I mean specifically, what are your growth processes? Meaning, what is a process that you go through every week, every month, every quarter, every year on troubleshooting your own growth, finding your own growth opportunities, and then what are the processes for you to actually execute them? And this might sound like, well, wait, like, what do you mean by that? But what I mean by that is specifically, what is the process where you go through when you say, okay, what are the actual problems in the business? What's actually blocking us from growth? 
that's already a process in of itself. Reviewing that, getting that information, making those decisions, analyzing it, talking to team members, brainstorming together. That's one process in and of itself. Then there's another process where you say, okay, now let's fix some stuff. Like, let's do some stuff. And that's a process. So a book that I recommend a lot is Traction. I believe it's by Gina Wickman. I have it on my mm. bookshelf over here. Yeah, I yep. recommend Traction a lot to folks. And um, the, the version of this that a lot of founders implement is the issues tracking. Mm. And you track issues across the company. You, you facilitate that information. But what Gino mentions is you actually have to have a process to collect that information. And then you have to have a process to address it. And this is actually, this is a sneaky thing because it feels like you've probably already have processes in the company. But actually, when we, upon further analysis, analyze everything, we actually find that, oh, actually, there is no process for this. And it's really, it's like willy nilly. And there's like a Notion database with tons of ideas or problems to fix, but there's no actual process to fix them. And this is a sneaky thing, because if you're not, if these issues are just piling up, some of you don't even, aren't even aware of them. But if they're piling up, you don't know about them, you're not tracking them, and there's no process to address them, they're just going to continue to slow down your growth. And it's... It's going to rear its ugly head eventually, but this is one of the top things that we're already finding. Yeah, um, I'm nodding my head through, throughout that and familiar with, with these things. And, and uh, also, I wasn't expecting you to say, uh, I mean, I saw the lacking internal processes under, understood. Um, you know, certainly, I, I, think, I don't know, like, what you feel like in SaaS if you get to a certain size. Uh, again, the podcast I was just speaking with, it kind of got to 5 million without you know, very, very many processes. But then to scale it to 10, it's like, it's a different world, right? And you need the processes. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be uh, this sort of milestone. And uh, I would say also like the SaaS stock with our business, <clears throat> we got it to 3 million without, you know, any processes. And then, you know, to scale beyond that, we're like, okay, now we need to bring in processes and systems. Would, what would you say generally from the customers? Because you, 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 you specialize zero to one um, and like, have you seen that you can't scale like to one or beyond one if you don't have, you know, let's say the basic processes, let alone the growth ones? A hundred percent. But th so here's so here's the thing is that I would actually argue, Alex, that you probably did have processes. Um, you just didn't realize that they were processes like there were yeah. like there like there was a flow that you went through, even though it, there, there probably wasn't like documentation on it. There probably yeah. wasn't like, you know, like an official formal thing, but there was still like a flow, a rhythm that you probably had internally. I mean, please disagree yeah. if, if not, but. No, 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 um, we did. Yeah, we did. And we picked up traction as a book when we were, again, around about 3 million. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was very, very helpful. So I do recommend yeah. that. Yeah. I, I, think, I think maybe the difference here is, um, so there's like unstructured process, which probably is a, mm -hmm misnomer <laughs> uh, or an oxymoron but but then there's also a very structured process and to me traction is a great example of like really structured process like there is a specific framework a specific list of things to go and do and to like rally people around but I think um, when it comes to like what is the flow of how you actually think about what the problems are in the business uh, and therefore also what are now the growth projects and experiments we got to go execute if there isn't that wheel turning it almost doesn't matter like what size you are. It won't like growth likely will fall apart at some point. Um, and so there's a company that I'm working with now. They are at uh, 20K MRR. They're trying to get to, you know, the 80, 83 or whatever the number is to get to a million. And 
one of the number one reasons why is because there's actually no internal flow of how they actually um, troubleshoot growth, think about growth, uh, get all of the people working on growth together to talk about, okay, what are the problems and how do we actually address them and solve them? And it seems like a really natural, like scientific process, but you'd be surprised at how quickly it gets siloed and also in isolation where maybe you're just talking to your content writer um, and then you're just talking to your product owner. Uh, none of them are talking to each other or talking to customers. Um, and, and, but it's because there's no like actual process that you guys are like working through. Um, and the, and to be fair, there technically is a process. It's just, it's not working. And so how do you like adjust it and shift it? Um, but yeah, I've, I've seen companies, uh, as small as 5k MRR, um, also not really quite have their own internal process nailed or they have a process, but it's just not efficient because they've got, almost like their, their energy is scattered across way too many things. And because there is no um, specific flow that they're in, they get unfocused and scattered. And we see that as well. But yeah, those are those are some examples. Yeah. And, and just quickly, last one on that. Um, as you were speaking, sort of remember, again, an- another podcast where we've had David Darman in, the uh, founder of Hotjar. Um, uh, and actually, it was when he he spoke at SASDOC, I want to say like 2017, and it was a talk about zero to 10 million in one straight line in, you know, 18 months or two years, right? <coughs> Again, as a bootstrap company. And so, <coughs> okay, what are the, some of the secrets? How have you done that? And he said, from the very beginning, they documented everything and created processes. And I was like, wow, like, again, we're kind of thinking about doing this, you know, three, four years down the line, but, you know, you did this at the beginning and, you know, had this incredible growth. So I think it just kind of backs up everything that we've uh, just been saying uh, mm. uh, there. Um, jumping into <clears throat> the second growth pitfall that we're not expecting, um, tell us about that. Um, yeah. What is it? Okay, so the next two have to do with KPIs, but the first one is not knowing what KPIs and metrics to actually pay attention to. And this one is so, so hard because you can measure everything. You can measure literally everything. And there are some things that you can't measure, but you can still make a number up and, uh, you know, from there, like extrapolate meaning. And I think I think the the toughest thing for founders is knowing what KPIs they actually need to pay attention to at the stage of their growth. But here's the thing. This is just actually really hard. Like, like there's, there's so, like I said, like there's so much that you could be tracking. But the guiding wisdom that I've been getting or I've been giving lately to founders that are trying to get to a million, um, even if they're super, super small uh, and maybe have like no MRR even, and maybe they just have like freemium users or free trial users or whatever it is. But the thing that I've I've really been um, teaching and coaching and guiding on is so there's the difference between your leading indicators and your lagging indicators. And you're probably already familiar with this concept, but I just want to make it really abundantly clear that a lagging indicator. So this is a KPI or a metric that um, it, it measures the outcome or the result of some input. Um, so the lagging indicator ultimately measures the output. A- MRR is actually a perfect example of this. MRR, ARR. Um, uh, technically even some people do consider like traffic numbers, trial numbers to be lagging indicators. Others would consider them to be leading depending on which side of the fence you're on. But lagging indicators are good to track, such as like LTV, uh, um, re- uh, cohort retention of certain customer segments. Those are good things to track. You should not track them. You should always know like what's going on, generally speaking, from a broad level of the business. But 
the actual KPIs that matter the most, and especially in the early days, and honestly will continue to matter, they'll just matter to different people as you grow, such as like product managers or marketers. But the, the leading indicators are actually where the secret sauce is. But the leading indicators that you pick will ultimately determine if you optimize and build for something that is relatively efficient versus inefficient or something that actually moves the needle versus not. The top leading indicator of success that I've been recommending to pretty much all of our clients because they they don't have a KPI for this is what does an activated customer who has gotten value look like? So when someone signs up for your SaaS, whether it's creating an account for a free trial or a freemium, um, whatever it is, maybe they've booked a demo, you signed, you know, they inked on the deal and now they're actually getting into the product and using it for the very first time. What does an activated successful customer who has achieved value actually look like? Then create a product KPI around that and then measure how many people start the trial or create an account if you're freemium and then achieve that activated customer moment. That KPI alone is going to tell you if you're going to grow or not, because if it's efficient, like if it's high, if it's like, I don't even, so this, and this is kind of where I want to be careful because there's no benchmark really for this. Yeah. But let's just say it's 50% plus. If it's like 60%, 80% of people who sign up for the product achieve that activated customer status, even if they haven't entered in payment details yet, which is important um, to differentiate because that's different than like getting value. Um, specifically getting value. What is the conversion rate to that? You'd be shocked at how many teams are not measuring this, don't have a definition for this. And because of that, because they don't actually know what does success look like for a customer, they don't actually know how well everything is converting when people sign up and get introduced to the product for the first time. This is a leading indicator, though. This tells us if it's high, we have a very strong chance of getting more customers this month. If it's low, we have a very low chance of getting more customers this month. Or if we do, they are the um, they're the exception and not the rule. And this is an example of like not knowing what to pay attention to. Yeah, and another great one there. And just speaking from my experience and people that founders again that we speak to and something that we took from traction, um, you know, is having a, a dashboard of the leading and lagging indicators. But <clears throat> again, not just any because you can have so many, right? Um, you can have a KPI for, for everything. Um, picking the right ones and kind of whistling it down to maybe you know, seven or eight, uh, you know, of the right ones to really kind of uh, understand how you can grow uh, as a business. So um, I think that's a good one there. What about the, 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 the third one about what, what, not knowing what to do when KPIs uh, mm. go south? Tell us about that. So this actually, okay, so number three is, I mentioned they're both about KPIs. So number three is, let's say you're tracking the right things. But when they don't, when they're not like doing the thing, when they don't look super great, you don't know what to do. And this is actually, it's actually correlated to number one, which is lacking the internal process of, okay, now that we're tracking the right things, how often are we reviewing them? How are we going to react? When are we going to react? How do we, how do we actually uh, measure and, and internalize and then translate that into action items? And we see this a lot with teams who um, they start, they do start actually tracking the right things, but then nothing ever actually happens once they start tracking the things, meaning um, they end up not necessarily prioritizing uh, the growth experiments and the projects that, that they need to execute to learn and to, and to see like what actually does move the needle. Um, but, but a lot of this really comes down to not really understanding or knowing what the levers are of growth in the business. And this 
I, I like I really can't blame anyone for not knowing how to address number three, like not knowing what to do, like when the KPIs go south, because it, it ultimately comes down to your understanding of of those growth levers, meaning when I pull the retention lever or when I pull the acquisition lever or when I pull the activation lever, how does that how does that increase growth in my business? If you don't understand your levers, then it can be hard to know. Um, so like, what do you do when activation isn't great? And and But the other part of this is just simply education. We just need to go and learn, okay, if I can see, for example, that maybe people are signing up for my trial, but they're not achieving the value moment or they're not, like there's a very low percentage of people who are activating, then number three kind of begs the question of, okay, so what now? Well, now we should, there's a couple of things. If we have a really good process, we'll probably pull some some, you know, thinking people together and some strategic people together and critical thinkers together. And we'll start saying, okay, how might we best improve this KPI? And we'll come up with all kinds of ideas. And then from there, hopefully we can prioritize them and turn them into tasks. But sometimes teams don't necessarily know exactly the best way to do this. And this is where educational resources come into play. This is where really learning, like how do other people improve specific KPIs? And if if we're looking at the right things, then we can trust at least that, you know, we're tracking the right stuff. But now it just becomes into how do we actually translate that into action? And, and interpreting and reacting to data is is really the the skill that needs to be developed internally. And this is like this is definitely a muscle. This is not it's not natural to everyone. Um, some folks and teams and founders need to build this muscle. And for some, it's really natural that when they see a, a KPI that's like not doing great, they immediately can start thinking of things to do and then actually go and do them. Um, but some teams need a little bit more guidance in this in this process. And that's natural. Like that's totally normal. N- no, like one team I think is perfect at like all the things. Um, but anyway, hopefully that that breakdown makes sense. <laughs> no, def- definitely. And what about the final two sort of pitfalls? Um, uh, what are they? Yeah. Okay. So th- the next one is lacking discipline in growth experiments and projects. I have um, very much a spicy take on this. You cannot call it an experiment if you never measure the end result. You can't. It is simply a well-intentioned project. I cannot tell you how many times I have um, analyzed the growth of a company and they have this huge list of all these experiments. I'm putting that in finger quotes. All these experiments that they ran and they never once measured the impact of them, which if that's the case, we cannot call them experiments. Part of the scientific process is to actually measure the results. And if we never take that step, they're just projects. They're just tasks. We just executed a bunch of stuff. They were not experiments. We can only call them an experiment if we measure it. But this is where discipline actually comes into play. There's a certain level of discipline that you have to have when you're running a SaaS business. And discipline when it comes to your um, you know, your customer research processes, when it comes to how you internalize and analyze data, but also when you execute things, if it was truly a growth experiment or truly a project with it, with the context of growth, then we need to measure how it went. And if we don't, we cannot call it an experiment. And also it kind of, it, it kind of goes back again into that, a little bit of that process. But this also speaks to culture and mindset. If we don't have a culture or a mindset of being diligent about measuring the impact of whatever it is that we're doing, then it means that we're leaving a lot of data on the table, but it also means that we're doing a lot of guessing and assuming, and that's super dangerous, I'm sure, as you know. Um, but discipline is, it's shock, it, like it's, it shocks me all the time how much it comes up. 
because it's um, it's one it's again it's a sneaky thing it's a thing that you might not realize is actually impacting you but when you think about how you go about operating in the business and how your teams operate in the business if you're lacking discipline in those areas you're like you're probably going to find that a lot of these projects and experiments they might not have not worked you probably just don't know because there's no like internal discipline when it comes to actually measuring everything um but anyway so that's number four and then number f- oh go yeah. ahead no no i was gonna say and and and, and then number five yeah Number five. Okay, this one. This one's. This one's another spicy one. Poor product management. This is another huge, just discipline practice. This is a practice in companies that feels like what? What do you mean poor product management? But what what I'm finding is product management. At the end of the day, it's it's all about the translation of. Uh, what a customer like what a customer is currently experiencing and what their desires are what their pains are translating that into value through the medium of product so we build product to deliver value to customers is the really easy simple way of doing that but part of the process of product management is to really deeply understand the full context of what the customer is actually asking about and then it's also the the process of understanding what entire swaths or segments of customers are are desiring and identifying if the feature that you're about to build or the expansion of the product that you're about to build or whatever it is, if it's one, going to be adopted, two, going to actually generate value for customers, and three, going to be something that is profitable. And sometimes product management can rear its ugly head when it comes to growth because um, it, it kind of feels like you don't have good product market fit, but actually what is happening is customers want the product, the software category makes a lot of sense, the market is like ready and willing for whatever it is that the product wants to provide it, but for various pro- like poor product management reasons, uh, the value is not actually delivered, not because you don't have product market fit, but because the product management actually internally for years hasn't been super great. Um, and this can look, so this looks like a couple of things. The first is, um, I can always tell that there's probably poor product management when the product build cycle is on a pure agile scrum cycle and more time is spent creating user stories than it is talking to users, understanding customers, understanding like the value that, that this is going to ultimately deliver and also, understanding adoption of these features, understanding was that actually more profitable or not. And that tells me that, okay, there's probably not super great product management happening here. The other indicator, and this is this is really uh, especially true for really early stage companies, but um, sometimes founders can, uh, founders will talk to customers, hear features. Uh, so customers are like, I want this, I want this, I want this. And they're like, okay, great. Here's a list of features that I'm going to go and build. But what ends up happening is, some of those features, they almost can't see the forest for the trees. Like they can't see the trend across all the features. And because there's no good product management practice to go back to those customers and like really understand the context and also understand like broadly speaking, what is the extra value that we can provide? Um, what ends up happening is the fe- like the founder just ends up building all the features. But you multiply that by one year, two years, three years. And now you have this really bloated product that now customers are having a really hard time adopting, activating inside of, and then therefore retaining inside of. So, and this this doesn't happen like, you know, overnight. This is obviously over several months and quarters and years of building. 
but it all comes down to product management. And and this is sneaky. It's so sneaky because it, like I said, it feels like it almost is like, do I have good product market fit? Um, and then sometimes it also kind of feels like maybe you're not positioning the product well. But what we're actually finding is, oh, no, we've just been making something super bloated for two or three years. And now no one is getting value out of it um, because we've kind of just been like blindly building for years. Um, there's a really good book called Escaping the Build Trap by Melissa Perry that I highly recommend everyone read, um, even if you're a marketer, like I highly recommend reading it. But what I'm finding is actually a lot of these companies are really struggling from from this exact problem and and or they're operating and running things, um, focusing on literally building and optimizing for building and not necessarily on capturing customer value, which translates into money. <laughs> so um, but anyway, so that's poor product management. It it is sneaky. Not all founders are great at product management and and it hurts to hear um, but I actually think there's either one of two choices. We either hire a product manager or we build the skill. It's another muscle to build. And, you know, you, obviously, like you can get really good at this. It's not like, you know, it's reserved for someone else. Um, we can get really good at product management. We just have to identify what maybe not good looks like and then work towards good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, <clears throat> you may be being kind. They'd say not all founders are good at product management. Um, <laughs> uh, and I definitely can speak from my, my own experience uh, uh, there. Kind of good with coming up with products, but then not really knowing what, what to do with it uh, afterwards. Um, but um, but yeah, th- those are five great pitfalls there that I definitely wasn't uh, uh, expecting. And two good book recommendations there, one being Traction. The other one was the, what was it? The build something? Escaping the build trap. Escaping the build trap. I would have uh, given myself a bonus point if I'd re- remembered that. But um, I would definitely read, it, uh, obviously, Red Traction, but not Escaping the Build Trap. Um, so uh, uh, good tips there from you, Asia. Now we're going to move on to the quick fire round. Uh, what mm. one thing has moved the needle the most for Demand Maven? Mm. Uh, drinking our own champagne and doing our own... Um, growth audit and also customer research on ourselves and talking to our clients in the way that we would for their customers. Uh, that has easily opened up the most doors for us. We we can see very clearly. So we deal with service market fit, which is slightly different than product market fit. But mm-hmm. service market fit is huge for us, at least on the services side. Um, but drinking our own champagne has honestly moved the needle the most for us. Very cool. Uh, do do Americans ever say uh, eating your own dog food, or is it just the Brits? Yeah, yeah no, Americans say that. I just like I do. Yeah. It feels like so. Like I don't want to eat dog food. Do you? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> Who I don't. wants to eat dog I, food? Yeah, but I champagne. I will yeah, drink yeah. champagne any day. There we go. There we go. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever received? Mm, oh gosh, um, the best advice I've ever received. I'm torn between two. The first was uh, to, this was actually given to me when I first started Demand Maven, and it was to focus on invoicing. Uh, and it took me years to really understand what that meant. But once I got it, I was like, oh, I get it. Focus on invoicing. Um, basically means focus on value delivery and mm-hmm. therefore sending the invoice. And then, um, no, I'm going to stick with that one. Yeah, that's probably okay. the best one I've heard. Uh, biggest failure you've made, lesson learned? Oof. Biggest failure I've made and lesson learned. It, it probably has to do with uh, with Demand Maven itself, uh, with my own business. I think I think the biggest uh, failure has has been I, I think back in the day, way back in the day, we used to like there was a certain way that we used to deliver projects, and it 
we we always had a suspicion that it wasn't working in the way that we desired or that it, that we wanted to. But through customer research or client research in this case, um, we talked to founders six months, a year after executing some of these products, and we found out that we were correct, that there were certain ways that we operated that just didn't actually it didn't translate value in the same way that we had hoped it would but now that we know it definitely doesn't work we're actually working with um, past clients on designing new services and new ways of delivering value that more align with like what their needs were and I think I think the failure here was kind of just like assuming that everything was hunky-dory for a while and then getting the suspicions that like oh maybe it's not working the way that we thought um, lesson learned here is actually to tighten the feedback loop. We shouldn't have waited so long to get that feedback loop of value delivery specifically. Um, but it's interesting because this year it like we are all about, okay, like we've we've redesigned our services. We've also redesigned even how we work with each other. And um, we think we're far closer now to that service market fit that I mentioned earlier. Very cool. Uh, hardest thing about being a CEO? I think the hardest thing about being a CEO is that um, <laughs> in some ways, uh, I think this is probably more of like a founder uh, thing, but no one will ever care more about your company than you. And that's not because they don't actually care about working for you. It's just the way that it is. Like you will naturally just simply care more. Um, but that's not to say that you need to find people that, care as much as you it's much more like you've got to like come down a little bit <laughs> and I've I have learned over the years especially when it comes to hiring um, I've learned that it is natural for me to care a hundred percent maybe even 200 percent but not everyone's going to be on that same level and that's actually okay uh, in fact I've come to I've come to expect it does that mean poor performance is okay no but what I am saying is like there's just like an inherent like you're just going to you're just going to care infinitely more than like anyone else who comes in the business, um, except for maybe like your co-founders. But I don't have a co-founder. It's just me. So I think in terms of CEO, though, it's it's probably um, kind of getting out of your own head a little bit. I think at least for me, running a services business, you get so involved in your clients and their growth that sometimes it it can be hard to remember to grow your own company. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think right. from a CEO perspective, I struggle with that. Uh, the most probably. Um, final question, uh, Asia. So you're returning to the SaaS.stage, stage, SaaS USA in uh, Austin, first uh, and second of June. Um, what are you looking forward to? What's good about Austin? Uh, I've actually never been. Um, you know, why should big people come? What are you speaking about? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm super pumped for SASDOC in Austin. Uh, I've been to Austin a couple of times and every time I go, I'm always just amazed by the culture there and also just by the overall vibe. I'm from Atlanta and Austin is, um, I guess technically it's a Southern city also, but I, I don't know, like it just has a very different, um, it just has such a different culture. Um, and also they, Texas has different barbecue than Atlanta does. And so I'm always like intrigued by their interpretations of things. Also some of the best Mexican you'll probably ever get. Um, so anyway, Austin is amazing in terms of SaaS stock. I, I was actually really impressed by just like how, how the SaaS stock, um, like founders go with open hearts and they, but they also go with such an excitement and enthusiasm that, I don't know, like it's it's just so it's just so specific to SaaS stock, I feel like. And I really, really appreciated my time um 
last year in Dublin, and I'm excited to see what it's like on the uh, on the state side. And in terms of what I'm speaking about, so there's a lot I think that's going on. I think I'm interviewing someone um, like for a podcast. I think my topic has to do. I'm actually going to dive deeper into activation mm-hmm. and really understanding like what are the, lever- the levers that you can pull inside of the activation space. And then also, um, I think I'm also hosting a workshop. I could be wrong about this, but I hosting so, a workshop. Yeah. Yeah, about um, troubleshooting growth, auditing your own growth. And I'm deciding on if we're going to do a case study together or if we're if we're going to go through your own companies. So if you attend this workshop, um, but it'll be somewhere in that arena is what I'm thinking. Very cool. Um, well, looking forward to all of that and um, uh, <clears throat> the workshops, the content, the podcast, but also some of the best Mexican uh, potentially that uh, I'll have ever had. So um, that's uh, all very exciting. Uh, but yeah, Sassot USA, uh, that's the 31st of May to the 2nd of June in Austin, Texas. Uh, go to sassot.com. You'll find uh, a link to the website and, uh, and join us if you're a SaaS founder or you know, growing your company in the US or you know, wanting to expand into the US. Asia, uh, been great having you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your top growth pitfalls. Um, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of months uh, in person in Austin uh, at SaaS.USA. Awesome. Thanks again for having me. And yeah, we'll see each other soon. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaSdoc conferences around the world. Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.